a new study, study of the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, if you've been with us over the past year or so, you know that uh, just this past spring we finished up our study of 1 Corinthians and it seemed like a good time to dive right into 2 Corinthians while it was still somewhat fresh in our minds as a church. This morning we'll be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. And that's found on page 964 in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along there as I read. There we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is in, at Corinth, with all the saints who are in, are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Which, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let us pray together. Lord, I thank you for this day and for the beginning of another study of your word. Lord, I pray for our church during our time in 2 Corinthians uh, for the next six months or so, Lord, that you would use it to strengthen your people. Lord, I pray that each one of us, no matter what our circumstances may be, Lord, would grow in our knowledge of you and in our joy in you and in our faithfulness in following you, that your name would be glorified in our lives. Lord, grow and build your church through the preaching and teaching of your word, through the work of your spirit, and through the obedience of your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as an aside, as I get started this morning, 
Well, I just want to warn you up front that I'm going to go move quickly through a lot of uh, the background and even the text this morning because these are themes that we are going to find repeated throughout the book of 2 Corinthians. And also just want to make a note that the outline has changed a little bit from what you find in your bulletin. Instead of there being three points, there are just two this morning. And uh, you will see how that goes uh, in just a few moments. But as we get started, I think it's good that we just have a, a general understanding of what Paul is doing here in 2 Corinthians. We need to understand the context and some of the circumstances uh, uh, which led to the writing of this letter by the Apostle Paul. Uh, 2 Corinthians is actually most likely Paul's fourth letter to the church, at least his fourth letter to the church. Uh, his first letter, as we uh, discovered in our study of 1 Corinthians was not preserved, but we find it alluded to uh, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Uh, Paul references his former letter that he had written to them. Uh, his second letter, which was 1 Corinthians, was actually written to answer questions that the church had raised uh, when they wrote back to him following his first letter, but also, <clears throat> excuse me, also in addressing those questions uh, the Apostle Paul also dealt with issues that had arisen in the church that really flowed uh, from their own sensuality, being led by their senses and their spiritual immaturity. A third letter, which Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, which is believed to be more severe in nature, uh, was believed to have been written after Paul made a visit to Corinth after he wrote 1 Corinthians. And uh, this painful visit uh, is something that he alludes to here in 2 Corinthians. And it's believed that what happened while he was there was that there was actually someone in the church who rose up and stood against his authority. And so when Paul was there and this happened and the church didn't really do anything uh, to, 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 to quiet this person who was objecting to Paul's leadership, Paul left somewhat discouraged, and, and upon returning back to Ephesus, he writes what he refers to as, uh, or what is referred to often as his severe letter, where he addresses these issues. And uh, these all took place um, really within the course of about a year, the writing of 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul's visit, his return, his uh, severe letter, and then his uh, writing of... Um, 2 Corinthians. Uh, so all these things really took place roughly about a year, in about a year's time between the years uh, 54 and 55 AD. And, and really when you think about these things taking place over such a short period of time, really does serve as a reminder of the reality and the, and the seriousness of, of what can transpire uh, as a result of sin in our lives. Usually when controversy or conflict arises and it's dealt with, whether it's in the context of a church or, or individually in lives, uh, most of the time you don't necessarily find immediate repentance, or if you do find immediate repentance, it's of, in relation to one area. 
usually when there's a, a major conflict that takes place, it's usually that's something that is resolved over time. So this really gives us a sense of both the urgency of what was going on of, uh, in Corinth. It was a very serious situation, but also the, the relatively quick nature in which Paul had to deal with the issues that were set before him, issues that were rooted in sin, issues that ran deep in the life of the church. If we were looking at a timeline of Paul's life, and again, I apologize for the, the, the small print here, but A.D. 33, all right, really? Okay, I guess the battery just died. At the far left of the timeline would be A.D. 33. That's roughly the time we think that Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. You read about that in Acts chapter 9. Well, here between A.D. 51, we're about midway through the timeline to A.D. 57. Uh, this is when Paul was first in Corinth, and then later, uh, 54 and 55, was part of his ministry uh, while he was in Ephesus. And so that's kind of where things fit. He had been a believer and, and involved uh, in his uh, ministry. This would be after the second missionary journey, or actually in the middle of his third missionary journey when he wrote First uh, and Second Corinthians. Um, and here in AD 66, we find his martyrdom at the end of the timeline there. So Paul really is uh, in the second half of his ministry. Things are coming to an end. And uh, as we know from studying his life, that the Apostle Paul uh, faced a, a challenging life and a challenging time in his servants of the Lord. Uh, if you want to consider an overview of 2 Corinthians, you can really think about it under two main headings. Chapters 1 through 7 are Paul's explanation of his ministry and the work of the gospel. Uh, this section also contains Paul's joy over his response of the church to his severe letter. He wrote that scathing letter to the church, basically calling them to act and deal with the sin that was present in the church and the church responded. So in this response, we find Paul praising them for taking care of, of what needed to be done. And, and he also encourages them to move ahead faithfully. In chapters 8 and 9, we find uh, uh, his teaching on giving and generosity within the church. And then the, the last part, the last section, chapters 10 through 13, Paul comes back to the issue of false teaching and its presence within the church. He uh, wants them to, to, to deal decisively with the problems in the church. In first Corinthians, or second Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 through 11, we really find Paul's greeting and his expression of thanksgiving to the church. And as we dive in here this morning, first of all, I just want to point out, you see in verses 1 and 2, that, that Paul states clearly that Paul is the writer of second Corinthians. And even among scholars that are more liberal in nature, there's been very little controversy with the acceptance that Paul wrote this letter. The church historically is held to that, but the evidence points to that clearly as well. You see this uh, in the historical and biological nature of what he's written there. It's a very personal letter that he's written to the church in Corinth. We know from the book of Acts and also uh, the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul had a deep and personal relationship with this church. Uh, he had a very bold relationship with this church. Um, 
in verses 3 through 11, we, we find this expression of gratitude, uh, which is a common feature of Paul's letters. But I don't know if you noticed this when I was reading verses 3 through 11 before. Uh, but Paul's gratitude is much different in 2 Corinthians, really, than, than any one of his other letters so far. What did he give thanks for? He gave thanks for the God who brings comfort in trials. Well, that's not Paul's typical approach. His, his typical approach is to, to, to express gratitude towards something that God was doing in the lives of his intended audience. Let me illustrate that from 1 Corinthians, just to, so you can see the difference there. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 4. Paul writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was <clears throat> confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any spiritual gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that's a, that's a different kind of gratitude, is it not? He's, he's focused on his audience, where here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter our second Corinthians chapter 1, you, you see something totally different. Listen again to, to verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Paul has a, has a different feel to that letter of thanksgiving. And you're going to find, really, as we work through this entire letter of 2 Corinthians that, that, that Paul really emphasizes this theme of, uh, of suffering and, 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 and God's sustaining hand in the midst of that. We know that Paul was no stranger to suffering. And, and here in verses uh, 3 through 7, we, we find the God who comforts his children as they suffer. We're going to tackle verses 3 through 7 under three headings. First of all, we're going to look at the source of our comfort. comfort. Secondly, we're going to consider the setting in which we are comforted. And finally, we're going to consider in verses 4 through 7, not 6, the scope of our comfort. The source of our comfort, verse 3. That word comfort in the Greek, it really emphasizes the encouragement and consolation that God supplies in our time of need. A lot of times when we think of the word comfort, we think more in terms of ease, right? These chairs are comfortable, so your bodies are relaxed even though your ears are assaulted by the sound of my voice. You, you, you think of, uh, of going home and, and laying down in a comfortable bed or, or, or having your bills paid and, and, and the heat turned on and, and it's a life without 
trials or issues. Well, that's not the comfort that, that, that Paul is writing about here in 2 Corinthians. He, he's writing about God's comfort, his special care, a, a particular expression of love and care for his people in their time of need. So comfort is, is God's encouragement, consolation. And, and true comfort, brothers and sisters, for us must be found in the person of God rather than activities that we may turn to that enable us, at least for the short term, to escape our circumstances. I'm going to camp on this idea of escapism a little bit later, but it's, I want to plant that seed in your mind. I want you this morning as we're looking at these first few verses in 2 Corinthians to, to, to think deeply about your own faith and practice. When, when the heat is turned up, where do we turn in our lives? Do we turn to God seeking Him to bring comfort and strength during our time of need or are there other things which draw our attention? To help us escape, to, to not think about maybe the trials that we are facing or going through at a given time. Escapism may have short-term benefits, but they are of no eternal value to us, and they do nothing to alleviate the trials at hands, brothers and sisters. In verse 3, the Apostle Paul points us to God the Father specifically, as the source of comfort. He, he's the God of comfort and mercy because of what Jesus has done for us. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper later this morning. And I believe that the Apostle Paul emphasizes God the Father as the source of comfort because of how God's relationship changes with us through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us. Okay. Why is that significant? Well, before we came to Christ, brothers and sisters, we need to realize that, that God's orientation, God the Father's orientation towards us was one of judgment and wrath. Now, it's in love that he sent his son, but we could not relate to him as father or comforter until Jesus paid the price for our redemption. And so I think Paul is, is keying in on, on, on God the Father as comforter in this, sake, in this instance because of what Christ has done. We know from the reading of Scripture and even from our own experience that all three figures of the Godhead of the Trinity are a source of comfort, are they not? Jesus Christ is our comfort. Our benediction this morning is going to be from the book of Hebrews where we're called to, to turn to Christ in our time of need to receive help and comfort. We know that the Holy Spirit is our comforter in our grief. And so Paul isn't ignoring the other roles of the Trinity, but there's a special emphasis here and I think that is rooted in that change of relationship that happens for us as believers through the work of Christ our Lord. Because of Jesus, his Father is now our Father as well. 
without Jesus, we would still be subject to God's judgment, and rightfully so. But Jesus redeems us. So God is the source of our comfort. The setting in which we are comforted, verse 4, uh, we, the, verse 3 ended with that phrase, that, that the God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction, is comprehensive. It's not all means all. Now Paul is, is writing specifically in this case, and I'm a little ahead of myself, concerning the suffering that, that he was enduring as a, as, a ministry of the go, as a minister of the gospel. But God comforts us in all affliction, brothers and sisters. That word affliction uh, is a reference to, to trials, anguish, distress, tribulation, persecution. It's a very strong idea. And Paul is writing from a perspective of one who was undergoing significant trials. We just studied a study of Philippians, and we know that Paul wrote that letter from jail. Even in that context, he was afflicted, imprisoned. God is the source of all comfort. We're going to learn much more about the affliction that Paul endured as we continue our study of 2 Corinthians. But again, we, we, we need to ask ourselves where we turn when we are afflicted because we will all be afflicted in this life. We'll be afflicted because we live in a fallen world and illness and injury and evil things happen in this world. And as we grow in our faith and we become more bold in our witness, brothers and sisters, we are going to be afflicted for our witness as well. And the question that we must ask ourselves now before it's happening is where are we going to turn? Now in our day and age, we live in a time where distractions, escapes, are the way that we deal primarily with our problems, is it not? It is. It is, whether it be binge-watching your favorite TV show so you can turn off your mind for a few minutes and not think about the problems, or, 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 or something more sinister, turning to some substance to try to numb the pain, or, or maybe you're like me, you just avoid the problem altogether, hoping it'll go away. None of those things ultimately help us deal with the reality of trials and affliction in a way that is healthy, in a way that helps us grow in our relationship with the Lord. This is an area, brothers and sisters, where we must learn to flee from the world's approach to dealing with our problems. And embrace the calling that we have and the privilege that we have to turn to a God who comforts us. To a God who comforts us in all of our affliction. The scope of our comfort. There is not one area of affliction or trial that we face that God will not comfort us. But not only that, God equips us to be able to comfort others in their time of need as well. Those who have received God's comfort in trials are, are, are those who are, are most equipped to be compassionate towards others as they 
walk through trials as well. And this is what we are called to as the body of Christ, brothers and sisters. We are called to comfort and care for one another in our times of need. Those who suffer for the sake of the gospel, they share in the sufferings of Christ and receive God's comfort. Spurgeon writes that there's a balance between our suffering and God's consolation. With great suffering, we can count on receiving great consolation, great comfort from God. But with little trials comes little comfort. He goes on to say, it's not for us to, 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 to become preoccupied with trials where we go out and try to find more, but that we trust God in the midst of every circumstance that he brings into our lives. We know that the ministry of Paul and the other apostles was marked by suffering, and, and it prepared the churches they served to suffer well for the sake of the gospel. Just as Jesus suffered and died to save others, so also the apostles' lives were marked by suffering so that others could come to hear, could hear the gospel. And this is a, an example that we should aspire to as well. Now, we may not face the same situations that the apostles did, but we are called to be faithful lights in this dark world. That involves our putting ourselves out there for the sake of the gospel. To be willing to be called a fool in the eyes of the world in order to represent Christ well. Because he truly is the greatest need that they have. So, in verses 7 to 11, we find that God sustains his children in their time of need. Paul continues, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now as we tackle these verses, we're going to do so under three headings. First of all, we're going to consider an almost unbearable burden that Paul had endured. Secondly, an undeniable dependence on God. And finally, an unashamed call to prayer. An almost unbearable burden, verse 8. Now, as we think about this affliction that Paul talks about in Asia, it's likely a reference to something that happened in Ephesus, but we aren't sure exactly what it is. Uh, back in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul makes reference to battling the beasts in Ephesus. This could be what he's talking about there, but we don't know for sure. But what we do know is, is that this affliction was, was something that utterly burdened him. Literally, that means to be extraordinarily weighed down by something. 
his point is, is really significant. He was in, in the situation that was beyond his own strength to deal with. He despaired of life itself. They, they saw them, themselves as having no way out. So, so we really do appreciate what Paul writes next as it relates to the comfort that, rece- that he received from God is to realize that Paul is not overstating what went on there. Paul was being crushed in despair by a circumstance that he thought would be the end of his life. In other words, he had been brought to the end of himself. He and his companions, they, they thought their lives were over. And while they were tempted to give up all hope, Paul opens our eyes to what God was doing in the midst of his trials. God was using their trial, their affliction, to strengthen their faith in him. That is key, brothers and sisters. Listen again to verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul, his companions, are in a situation where they think they're going to die. They look to God, but not just in a generic sense, but specifically remembering that God raises the dead. That's that's powerful. How we view God in the midst of trials matters. God answers help God prayers. Yes, all the time. You know, those ones we call out in our time of need. But it matters how we view him. Our understanding of God and his character enables us to endure trials well. Paul's saying, listen, people, we thought it was over. We were being crushed under the weight of everything that was going on. But then we remembered that God raises the dead. I'm reminded of, of, of Philippians chapter 2. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Whatever happens, it's a win. We remembered to rely on this God who, who, who isn't just in power over life, but over death as well. Behold your God, church. Is this how we view him? Is this how we turn to him in our time of need? Do you realize that he is not just sovereign over the good things that you face? He's not just sovereign over the trials that you endure. He is sovereign to the point that he knows the day that you will take your last breath in this life And not only that, he will bring you safely home to glory. This is the only way that we can overcome trials. Let that strengthen our weak faith this morning, church. We fret over the most trivial things and through it all God calls us to depend on him to forget the trivial to take up our cross and be willing to suffer and die for him and receive his comfort care and encouragement every step of the way 
verse 10, we see that their faith in God was not misplaced. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us. So Paul and his companions were not even out of the woods yet. They were facing a different situation. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. They learned from their trial, their crushing grief, that God was faithful. And that experience of his faithfulness was sustaining them in their next trial as well. Brothers and sisters, we should stay here all day until we view God like this. But I won't. Paul closes in verse 11 with an unashamed call to prayer. Paul and his companions, we see in verse 10, are still in danger and need of deliverance. And so he calls on the church to pray for them. And prayer, as we know, is an expression of dependence. Here in this, remember, this is all Paul's expression of gratitude. His introduction, if you will. Doesn't this raise your expectations for 2 Corinthians? Paul is hammering us pillar to post to, to, to trust God and to seek comfort from God as he's introducing this letter. And then he calls the church to pray and I think by extension calls us to be more faithful and more fervent in prayer as well. Now, as a people, we must remember that prayer is our priority. Paul understood that he and his companions needed the church to be praying. And we must realize that we need the church to be praying as well. We ask you to pray for the leadership, but it goes way beyond that. Our prayers for one another individually in the context of what goes on in our private walk with God are just important. And we need to know one another well enough to know how to pray for one another. And we need to be faithful in praying for one another, brothers and sisters. I, I, I titled this message, How God Uses Trials to, to Strengthen His People. But I think we also need to understand that we might need to change how we view trials. If we simply view them as things to, that, that come into our lives, that maybe somehow are punishment or, 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 or whatever crazy understandings we have of it, maybe we just view them as something that we want to escape at all costs. But we need to understand, brothers and sisters, that trials strengthen our faith and our intimacy with God because they guide us towards him in our need when we don't choose something else. And sometimes the pressure has to get turned up really high before we turn to him. We need to understand that trials are a part of God's equipping us as his people. We experience his comfort but it also enables us to care well for others. 
I should say we must not neglect our obligation and our privilege to pray for one another. We all go through trials as the church. The need is real. And the call on the church to, to, to be faithful in prayer as we walk through these times is clear. When we don't take seriously our obligation to pray for one another, it really is a sign of sin and unbelief. And we need to think of it in those terms. And in so doing, repent and begin to pray more faithfully for one another. Take a notebook. Write down the prayer requests that you're aware of. Assign a day of a week to, to each one, unless it's something that's pressing, and then pray continually for it. But be faithful. Give yourself some tool to be successful in your commitment to pray for one another. Each week, inevitably, more prayer requests come to you via email. If you don't get those emails, speak to Allison. We want to get you on the list. But we need to take seriously that call to prayer because trials are a call to prayer for the church. And finally, brothers and sisters, we must let trials purify our desires and our priorities as we seek to be faithful in this life. When the heat is turned up, it often reveals what we truly love. Does it not? It often reveals what we love because of what we turn to in the midst of those trials. And so it's a great opportunity for us to reflect on where our hearts and minds are as it relates to our walk with the Lord. You are all aware of the holiday that is quickly approaching in just a couple of days and I know there are at least a couple of you and maybe more who are into resolutions and, and that and as I close this morning I, I want to close with four that I would challenge each of us even those who don't resolve to do things would seek to do not just in the new year but until you look on Jesus face to face first of all I'd encourage you to resolve to spend time with God daily through devotions read his word what does this passage tell me about God what does it tell me about myself is there anything that needs to change as a result of what I'm reading here? Does it increase my worship of God? If not, is there something wrong with my understanding? Secondly, as I alluded to earlier, resolve to pray daily. Pray for your church family. Pray for your unsaved family members. Pray for others in your life. But pray, understanding that the God whom you seek in prayer is able to answer the prayers of his people. And he changes us as we pray as well. The next one may be more difficult for some of us. Resolve to be more bold in our witness for Christ. This attacks our fear of man, does it not? We want to be liked. 
And telling people that they are sinners in need of a Savior doesn't usually draw a crowd. But it's the message of true life, brothers and sisters. And finally, resolve to be an encouragement to others in the body of Christ. A true encouragement. Someone who points others closer to God in their walk. Those are our four life-changing resolutions that we can all get on board with. Brothers and sisters, we were saved for more than just a change in our destination when we die. We were saved that our lives would be transformed here and now and God's glory would be revealed in the faithfulness of his people. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of 2 Corinthians. And although we have just scratched the surface this morning, I pray that in the weeks and months ahead, Lord, that your hand would be upon us in a mighty way. Lord, that we would be open and yielded to the work of your spirit in our lives. Lord, that the unsaved would respond in faith to the gospel, that those who would who believe would have their faith strengthened. Lord, that we would be drawn together in deeper relationships in you. And that the end result would be that you would be glorified in all that we do. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.